Luke 23, 44 through 49 is where Rick is starting our new series from this morning. And it says this. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Anybody want to dance? <laughs> uh, sometimes I wish that I wasn't silly. Um, this would be one of those times. Um, if you have your Bible, open it to Luke chapter 23. Um, and uh, I, did, I did not create that video. Um, and, but it is, it is appropriate that we would have some music that you might want to dance to because today is North Church's 11th birthday to the exact day. Yeah! March 18th of 2007, we, uh, we had our first service about, I don't know, half a block that way at what used to be North American Martyrs Catholic Church. Um, it was cool. Was there anybody that was here th- that day? Yes, there's like four of us that are here. That's, that's really cool that God has come and brought and, and brought new and, and sent old and it's it's cool. Um, and by the way, the cookie cake that's in the back back there is, uh, is, is for Happy Birthday North Church. 11 years. Um, 11 years. There's, there, are, there are kids, mo- like most of the kids that are in, the, in this room or most of the kids that, are, that come to this church are, uh, are younger than 11 years old. It kind of makes me think when I, when I consider all that God has done in 11 years. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm excited for the birthday today. So if you see North Church today, tell, tell them happy birthday. <laughs> uh, once again, I wish I wasn't silly. Uh, when I was in college, uh, my, my college job, my, my senior year and then right out of college, uh, I worked at Channel 2 in the sports department. And uh, the, the biggest part of my, I did lots of things for them, uh, kind of an assistant producer role. But the thing that I did the most was was really cool. It was my job, my, my job for which I got paid and for which I got school credit was uh, to watch Cardinal baseball games. Pretty cool, right? Um, and but more so, I, I would watch the game and I would have to write down um, when important plays happen or when like really good plays happen. If somebody hit a home run or somebody made a diving play or the game was won on this particular play, I would mark it down on a piece of paper. Um, and then after the game was over, I'd go and get all the tapes and my notes and hand it to the producer who would create the highlight package that would be shown on TV that night, right? Um, so that was, that was my job. And uh, I'll tell you more about that throughout the series because the series is witness. And, and the idea is that, that Luke, 
is uh, writing his book, writing his gospel about the life of Jesus. Luke is a second generation follower of Christ, and he's writing to second generation followers of Christ. So he's writing about stuff that he didn't see. He's relying upon somebody else's notes for something that, that they saw and then reporting it to a group of people for the next generation. Very similar to when you're watching highlights of a game on TV, the likelihood is the, the person who's, who's announcing those highlights didn't see the game because they were busy doing other stuff. And, and I know in the Channel 2 Sports Department back in 1993, the Mark Curtis was the anchor. He never watched any of the games. He was busy doing other anchor stuff. And then the producer was the same way. He might have watched maybe an inning or two of the game. He was completely reliant upon me and guys like me that were watching the game making notes so that they could report and tell everybody what happened in the game. And Luke is the exact same way. And he's, he's reporting stuff that he didn't see, but he's done a lot of research and he studied a lot of stuff to understand what this is. And, and the, most of, the, of what Luke has written and a, a portion of what he's written comes from, uh, he was kind of a, an apprentice to Paul and he was also reliant upon the gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel, by the way, was written in conjunction with Peter and Mark wrote that gospel together and is used as a source in some degree to what Luke has written. So we've got a typewriter as sort of the, the, the image for this series because it's, it's, it's really a reporter's job to come and, and talk about what, what God has, has done and what the life of Jesus did. Um, so Luke is very much like um, this reporter. So let, let's dig into, uh, dig into our story this morning. Um, by the way, just we're going to be in Luke through probably for the next several months, back, even like through summer, August, September. Um, but we're starting kind of at the end because we're right around Easter. So we're going to kind of give today where Jesus' Jesus's death happens, and then tomorrow, next week, and then the following week will be Easter. We'll talk about the resurrection, and then after Easter, we'll go back to the, to the beginning of Luke. Um, but one of the things to, to notice is because Luke is writing as like a reporter would write, he's very descriptive and he's really interested in what people see in the stories. He's not as interested in, in the facts as he is about getting into the people that actually witnessed the events that happened. And so this morning, we're going to dig in, for, in in that same capacity to look at two people or, or one person and, and a group of people, the centurions and the crowds, and what they actually saw. And hopefully that'll begin to teach us how to witness God, Christ moving in our contexts. All right? So one of the, one of the biggest things for, for this series is to begin to teach us to, to learn how to spot God moving in our stories and, and witness him. So uh, Luke chapter 23, 44 through 49. I know Kelly read it, but let's, let's read it again together. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they were turned home, beating their breasts. And, an, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood 
at a distance watching these things. Um, let's pray. God, um, thank you for this morning. Um, thank you for 11 years as a church. Um, we are completely and utterly reliant upon you in every way, Father. God, draw us into your presence now and teach us about who you are and what your son Jesus has accomplished now and forevermore in his death and his resurrection. God, thank you for Jesus. Engage our hearts and our minds with him today. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Uh, So I want to set the scene a little bit. Uh, First, it says the sixth hour, which in this culture is noon. So from noon until three, there's a darkness that covers the land. Um, And so I I asked this question. We were preparing the uh, Kelly and uh, and Josh and and Noah were up here rehearsing this morning. And I asked them, what what would it be like if like today at noon, which is what, like an hour and a half away, if it just got completely and utterly dark, like darker than midnight dark, because the moon isn't there. So the sun's light is completely blocked out for three hours. Well, like what, what sort of things will be running through your head? And that's, sometimes we, we, we see miraculous, crazy, weird things in scripture, and we don't engage with them because we expect stuff like that. But I want you to understand the fact that when this stuff, when this, these conversations are happening, there's complete and utter darkness that's, that's happening in the world or in, in this area. Uh, so the, and the darkness was, was literal, but it's also metaphorical because throughout scripture, Jesus, our God uh, uses darkness as a metaphor for lament um, and by the way, the song that we just sang, Josh, what, what psalm is that? 13. 13. That's the song, uh, I'll wait for you, wait for you. That's Psalm 13, and it's, it comes straight from Scripture, and it's a lament psalm. And one of the things that Josh is trying to do is bring some of these lament psalms and lament songs into our process because it helps us to connect with the gravity of life and the gravity of what's happening in our world, but also teaches us, laments teach us that God shows up in those dark times. And I'm talking about darkness happening. God shows up in the dark times. For, and this time from noon to three when Jesus died, it was literally dark. And God showed up in a miraculously powerful way. So I want, I want this. I wanted, one of the things that I want us to witness is that in these dark seasons of life, God can and does show up. And laments teach us that. When God brings darkness, oftentimes he's speaking metaphorically to teach us about lament because life is not always perfect. Darkness also is metaphorical in Scripture when it talks about God's displeasure. God is displeased with things. He talks about darkness. God is clearly and obviously displeased with the fact that we've just killed his son. Um, But he also... Darkness represents also judgment, and God's judgment on people and on the land brings this darkness. Um, there's another thing that's of great significance here. The, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Um, the temple uh, curtain would have been 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. That's, that's pretty wide, pretty long, right? Um, and it would have also probably been 
from what scholars have, have, I've read this week, that it would have been about curtains, series layers of curtains to be about three feet thick, right? So there's lots of curtains that kind of become this maze for the, the high priest to go. So let me back up a little bit. So the, the, the temple had an inner room that was the holy place. And then behind the curtain was the most holy place. So the priest could come into the holy place, but only once a year and on one day a year could the high priest go into the most holy place. And the most holy place was where God dwelled. And only one person in the entire world had the right and the authority to go into the most holy place. And he only got, had the chance to do it for one day out of the year. And there was lots of preparation that he had to make. There was special clothing that he had to wear. It was a white linen robe that he would wear. And that's all he would wear, a white linen robe to go in there. And it had to be perfectly clean and never worn before and only worn this one time and then destroyed after that. And then he would also have to make a perfect sacrifice of a perfect animal before, for himself and for his own sin before he could go in. And the day that he went in was called the Day of Atonement. So he was going in to atone for his sins and everyone else's sins in the, in the world that, for that previous year on that day and on that time. So he makes a sacrifice for himself so that he doesn't die when he goes in and he wears perfectly clean clothes. And then he, there's a ritual cleansing that he, that he does before he puts on his perfect white linen robe. So, and, and then this is the thing I learned this week too. There's a... There was a special incense that he burned before he went in. So he took this incense that was burning, and this incense brought, uh, brought a, a smoke that would cloud his eyes so that it would hide and mask the glory of God when he would go past the temple curtain because he couldn't look upon the glory of God because and this, the smoke from this incense would keep that. So imagine, like, get the, the, let's witness this event He's done this, the busiest of days, and he's going in with fear and trembling, entering into the glory of God, and he's carrying this, this burning incense that's got his eyes completely filled with, like, water. And, like, probably it looks like he's deeply crying because his face is just filled with tears that have been created by this incense so that he can't directly look upon the glory of God. I say all of that to say there's this... There's this re- Lots of stuff that had to happen before Christ died for anyone and this one special person who had done lots of preparation to go into the presence of God. One person with lots of special stuff happening could go in one day out of the year. But the the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, 60 feet high by 30 feet wide by 3 feet thick. These series of curtains is torn. It's extremely significant. Because they have now everyone at all times without preparation has invitation to the presence of God. Like that is, that's earth shattering news. And and that's incredibly good news. I'm not naive enough to think that there's not someone in this room right now in this moment who believes that God is mad at them who believes that there's something wrong with them that causes God to want to repel you from his presence. That is, as as Kelly has already said, that's a lie. You have one enemy and his name is Satan and he has one tool, one weapon. That's to get you to believe something that's not true. 
You have one hope, and his name is Jesus. And he's done what's necessary to tear the veil apart so that you can enter into the presence of God. Let me say that again. You can enter into the presence of God because of the life of Jesus Christ. The temple veil has been torn in two, and now everyone for all times with the blood of Christ can enter into the presence of God. You have that right. You have that authority. Consider that you have access to God at all times. And so I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that there's, there's not someone in this room who the enemy is lying to you saying you don't have any standing before God. That's not true. But there's also probably someone in all of our lives who is wallowing in guilt, wallowing in shame, wallowing in misery, waiting, hoping, praying, desiring that they could somehow get themselves cleaned up enough that God might have some sort of attention to pay to them. That's not true. And, and like, God has sent you, God has, has uniquely equipped you relationally to speak to somebody in your life who's wrestling with that, maybe even wrestling with that right now. Maybe they didn't come to a church. Maybe they, they come here with some sort of regularity and they did not because they, they think that God doesn't, doesn't want them in his presence or there's something wrong with them. The truth is, God is sending you on a mission to proclaim that message to them that the temple's veil has been torn in two and you have complete and utter access to God at all times. Um, I want you to deeply consider that this morning. Um, something that we've been doing the last few weeks and we're going to do it again in this moment. I want to selah, which is a, a Hebrew word that's written throughout the Psalms. It just means stop and consider God. So let's stop and consider God. And, and two things to consider God in this moment. So we're gonna, there's going to be silence. It's going to be awkward or, or not. Uh, sit in silence and, and consider what God has done for you to allow, him, to allow you to enter into his presence at all times. And then consider who in the world God is calling you to proclaim this temple veil being torn and utter access who is, it, who is God calling you to do that? So stop and consider God. God, thanks for, uh, thanks for dwelling with us. <clears throat> God, I pray that you would overcome our hearts with thoughts of devotion to you and what you've done. God, change our daily lives, Father. To know that we're welcome in your presence. God, and change our mission 
allow us to proclaim this message, this life, this love that you've got for us and you've given to us. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name. Amen. Um, I want to spend the last little bit together talking about two people that I've already mentioned before, the centurion and the crowds, and what they actually saw, and then their response to what they saw. Um, Stuff that we haven't read this morning, but that the crowds and the centurions also witnessed from verse 34, a few verses before, um, Jesus says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, This is what they witnessed, and, and we can witness today, too, to consider this idea that in the middle of his murder, Jesus prays for the people that are murdering him. What, what kind of love must be present? Someone is murdering Jesus slowly and painfully. And Jesus asks God to forgive them. Like, this is incredible. Who in your world is hard to forgive? Look at the life of Christ, someone murdering him, and he literally asked God to forgive him, forgive them. And the people that the, the most direct person responsible for the physical act of his murder is the centurion that's guarding him, who is the, the key witness in this story. Jesus He's probably standing at the foot of the cross, so he's just a few feet away, probably could reach up and touch the feet of Christ. And Jesus prays, forgive him, because he just doesn't know what he's doing. Forgive him. What love has to be present in Christ to do this? And he's, the, the centurion is affected, but not to the point of, of doing anything yet. They also witness Jesus a couple of verses later in verses 42 and 43. Jesus engages one of the, the people standing or hanging, dying next to him on, the, on a cross next to him. He engages him with this. The criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. Jesus is forgiving people and he's showing kindness to people while he's dying, while he's being broken. And then verse 46, one we've already read this morning, Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, what the crowds in the centurion witness are Jesus being kind and Jesus forgiving. And now he's praying to God, and willingly laying down his life. I want you to to see that in his words and in his voice. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I'm giving my life away in this moment. And this is what the centurions witnessed, the centurion and and the crowds witnessed. Then it's in this moment that the veil is torn away. It's in this moment that Matthew relates 
that rocks split. Jesus breathes his last breath and the temple is torn immediately and rocks actually split. Big, huge, boulder rocks split. There's a power. There's a, there's a strength. There's something incredible that happens in this moment. And darkness has covered the land. And there's these, um, the, the intensity of what happens is profound. But what does the centurion say? The centurion praises God. It says the centurion praised God. That word is the Greek word doxazo, which means a verb that means to magnify, to give honor, to celebrate, or to praise. The same guy who had the authority to to bring him down, the same guy who witnessed him praying, who witnessed him asking God to forgive him, the same guy now says, after watching this happen and the, the rock splitting and the earth shaking and the darkness happening, he says, this man was innocent, and he praised God. And, and our word praise just means maybe, maybe when you think of praise, praise God, what do you think of? It may not be this deep, intimate thing that happens for this centurion. But this word doxazo, the Greek word for praised, the verb, is, is used 53 times in Scripture. And every time it's used as man's response to witnessing a miracle. So this, is, this isn't just you come to church and you sing, sing some praise songs. This is, I've just witnessed a miracle in front of me. And this is what happens to the centurion. Um, I want, one of the things, this is a phrase that I want us to, to ring in our heads for this week and maybe throughout this series, the, to, to see the godness of a situation. It's my privilege as a pastor to get to make up words. I've just made one up. The godness of a situation. And I want you to to see here the centurion responding to the godness of the situation. And anytime this word doxazo happens in scripture, it's someone responding to the godness of a situation. But what I want us to, to learn to see, to learn to witness, is there are God situations that happen to us all the time. And I want us to be alert to witness the godness of situations. And again, you are uniquely gifted, uniquely equipped, and uniquely relationally equipped to bring the miracle of Jesus Christ to someone's life in your world. And one of the biggest things for this series to witness is for you to to understand that God has called you to be his witness someplace. And not some witnesses in like some track handing out that you learned how to do when you were in 11th grade at some youth camp. This is, you are a witness to what Christ has done in this world. This, the same way that Luke is. Luke didn't see this stuff happen. Luke is hearing about this secondhand and, and giving it to the second generation of people. And this is the the same for us. God is calling us to be witnesses to the godness of our situations. Um, What did he see? He saw darkness covering the land. He saw the earth shaking. And he saw Jesus loving and praying and then willingly dying. Um, Then the crowds in verse 48. It says, The crowds returned home beating their breasts. And I, I, I studied that this week, what that phrase means, because that's their immediate direct response. The centurion's was to, to doxazo, 
to see the godness of the situation. But the crowds, was, their response was to go home beating their breasts. And, and my immediate response thought about that. What it means is they're just really sad about what happened. There's a degree of that. But this is a phrase that is used throughout the culture. And Luke, being a journalist here, he's using language that will evoke a response from his audience. You follow me here? He's using this language intentionally so that it will evoke. It's not just, I'm really sad and and I wish that hadn't happened. Beating their breast is a phrase that's used by Luke in other places, most notably in Luke 8, 9 through 14. Um, Fire that up there, Abram. I want to read this together. Jesus talking here, uh, and this is not long before he would die. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, one a very religious person and one a person that religious people were predestined to hate. So, by the way, tax collectors aren't just people who were greedy and got money for themselves by overcharging other people. Tax collectors were these, they were, they were employees of the Roman government who were tasked to tax the Jewish people and they taxed them too much. And they would give, they would take money from the Jewish people and give it to their oppressors. Imagine us today, someone here legally taking extra money from you and giving it to Al-Qaeda. That's a similar deal. That's who, the, that's who tax collectors were, right? So we got a, a, a religious person and uh, a thief who's funding our enemy. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, which, and that was a direct jab at this tax collector unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. I'm really important and I do really good religious things is what the Pharisee is saying. And then here's the tax collector, but the tax collector standing far off, which is really important because when we have the mindset of the tax collector, we think we have to stand far off from God, but that's absolutely not the truth. You have access to God completely and thoroughly at all times. The tax collector, standing far off because he didn't fully understand the gift of Jesus Christ, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead he beat his breast. There's the the exact same phrase that Luke uses about the crowds after the death of Christ, beating their breast. This phrase is not a deep sadness. This phrase is repentance. I've seen, we can go back to to all the Beatitudes that we just talked about last week and been talking about for the last 10 weeks. It starts, repentance starts with acknowledgement of your own sin. And I'm broken over my own sin and I'm mourning my own sin. And then I realize that God has made peace, that Christ has made peace with God for me so that I can come into his presence. I'm a helpless person in desperate need of mercy. All of the Beatitudes and all that we study for the last 10 weeks are wrapped up in this phrase. He beat his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help. We remember studying the, the word mercy. That's a, a 
the Greek word just means I need help for the afflicted. I have something wrong with me, and I need your help to fix it. God, have mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, the man went down to his house justified. Repentance happened in this guy's life. Repentance happens in the crowd's lives. Back to our story in Luke. The crowds went away beating their breast. The crowds went away repentant. The response to witnessing the godness of a situation needs to be, ought to be, and is always repentance. We see our sin and we respond that God is better and we respond justified. And justified means we have the legal privilege to enter into the presence of God. This is incredibly powerful, incredibly deep theological stuff. This is like seminary class, and, and, but, it, but it's so Christ-like simple. The responses to witnessing the godness of Christ and the godness of his death are two. This daxazo praise, we've seen the glory of God on display, and then to deeply repent in such a way that we're changed. This is the call that God has for us. Um, I think now is a good time to stop and just doxazo. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for these moments where we will respond. And Father, I pray for the familiarity of this time to be to not be a block to engagement with you, Father. I pray that, that some here would repent of sin. I pray that some here would, would doxazo. I pray that we would see the godness of, of this situation, Father. And I pray that you would teach us to see godness of other situations, Father. I pray for opportunity for each of us this next week to engage this story of Christ with someone. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for sending him to put on display his great love and your great love for us. That on the cross, while he was dying, he would pray, forgive them for they know not what they do. It would engage with his truth and his love to the criminal next to him, Father. Father, as we go through, as we begin to go through this season, this time of year where we celebrate your death and your resurrection, God, open our hearts and our minds. Lord, help us to understand that there's, there's never a better time throughout the year to, to engage with your sacrifice for our lives than this time, Father. God, prepare our hearts for Good Friday. Prepare our hearts for Palm Sunday. Prepare our hearts for Easter. Prepare our hearts for, to engage our, our cultures with that and prepare our hearts to engage just ourselves with that, Father. And allow us to respond as these witnesses have with, with daxazo and, and with repentance. And then, God, would you just sit with us as you promised to. 
thank you for Jesus. Allow us now to engage with him in a sacrifice. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.